Welcome to She Hustles Podcast, and I'm your host, Josira Santiago Hines. I'm a registered nurse turned into an entrepreneur, and I'm here to motivate you to finding true happiness and living your best life. I am so excited to introduce my guest speaker today, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. She is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach for fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. Lisa, I am so excited to have you on She Hustles podcast, your book, what can I say about it? It would have been so amazing. I finally feel like I have control and I know what my menstrual looks like and what it should be. And also I've been in the process of, you know, I got off my birth control and I've been learning how to prevent pregnancy. And your book has truly, truly helped me with the steps on learning my body. Like I'm 31 years old and it took me until now to realize all the stuff that happens in your body. So thank you. Thank you for writing that book and really educating us women about things that we truly need to know. So you're the author of The Fifth Vital Sign. And I know that's probably people listening to this podcast and they're like, what is a vital sign? As a nurse, I know what that is. But can you tell us a little bit about what is a vital sign and why should we consider the menstrual cycle a part of a vital sign? Yes. Um, well, thank you, first of all. Uh, I'm so excited to hear that you're jumping into this journey and, and charting your own cycles. So just a side note. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so I called the book The Fifth Vital Sign um, because I'm essentially arguing that the menstrual cycle is an important vital sign that we should be paying attention to. So for those of the listeners who are not nurses, um, a vital sign is a bodily response that you can measure that basically tells you information about how your body's functioning. It can give you information about your health. And so the most common vital signs are body temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure. And so in the general sense, we all know that if your blood pressure is too high or if it's too low, not only does it tell the doctor that there's something wrong, but it also provides a bit of a roadmap for where to look first, because we know there's certain things that would cause high blood pressure or things like that. And so basically with the menstrual cycle, so when you're looking at the whole cycle from say the first day of your period, it's day one to the day before your next period starts, so the whole thing, there's um, a normal set of parameters uh, for you know the different phases of the cycle, and if your cycle falls outside of those parameters, uh, not only can it tell us just in general that there's something going on, but if it's a cons- a consistent pattern that persists, it can give us really specific information about our overall health. Wow, yeah. So a lot of people are like, huh? But now it just makes all the sense, right? I was on birth control for wow, plus ten plus years, and I wasn't getting a real menstrual period. Um, I went months without having my period 
and um, talking with doctors. A lot of them, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say anything about doctors, medicine doctors and stuff, but um, it's really important that us women really understand our body so that we can advocate on for ourselves because with me sharing my story that I wasn't getting a period and what I learned from your book and also uh, Dr. Jolene, what I've learned from her and um, just sharing my story, I realized that a lot of women are not getting their period and they thought it was okay. So thank you for you know sharing all of that. So now we're actually gonna talk about the cycle. Um, a lot of women don't know what a normal cycle is. Maybe they're just used to not getting their period or maybe they're used to having painful periods or anything that is. So you can, can you tell us a little bit about what a normal cycle is and how can you best track your cycle? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think one thing I just wanted to touch on before I jump into that is, is what you said, you know, a lot of women do have issues with their periods, like they stop getting it all together, and they go to their doctor concerned. So our intuition tells us this is there's something off here, right? And then we go to the doctor, and they say it's totally fine. So slamming that down. So it kind of trains us not to, to kind of pay attention because we I feel like on a deeper level we all know (laughs) that if we're of reproductive age if we're not on a hormonal method we should be getting our periods right and so a big part of the shift that I would love to see happen is that we actually acknowledge that for a a woman of reproductive age that uh, having a normal menstrual cycle ovulating regularly having a period is a part of the way that the normal body is expected to function if we can just have that basic understanding that regardless of whether or not you're actively trying to have children today it is still important for a woman of reproductive age to have healthy cycles if we can first establish that as the normal then this conversation doesn't seem so strange so the bigger question is why does our medical model just completely gloss over that and teach us that the period only matters when we're trying to have babies and doesn't even really talk about ovulation. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> so I thought that needed to be said uh, as we jump into this. But so what is a normal cycle? I think for a lot of us, the way I look at it, my perspective is that, you know, the, the birth control pill has really changed our expectations of what we think a, a cycle should look like. So because the pill packs come in 28 days segments, we assume that our cycles are supposed to be 28 days. And if it's not, then there's definitely a problem. So it's helpful to know that a healthy cycle can range anywhere from about 24 to 35 days in length. The average is about 28 or 29 days. And of course, ideally a more functional range would be a bit closer to that but it is important to know that you can have 26 day cycles or you can have 33 day cycles and that'd be totally fine because the length of the whole cycle is not the only factor that we're looking at so that's one of the factors so the other you know i'll go through some of the other factors but you know we look at the period and i always like to say the cycle is like you know all the way through because sometimes when i say cycle people just think period but for periods uh you know in a healthy cycle your period would last anywhere from about uh, three to seven days with an average of about four to five days we would expect it to start moderate to heavy and um, during the first three days typically are the is the most bleeding and then it gradually tapers off and then you think of it like a sentence, like it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then it's over. So we would expect it not to just go on and on. We wouldn't expect you to have all this bleeding throughout the cycle. Um, also, you would expect, um, when you look at the research and women's experiences, there is a such thing as too light or too heavy. So over the course of the whole period, you would expect to bleed at least about an ounce, uh, 25 milliliters or so, give or take. So if you use menstrual cups, like you'd expect to fill a menstrual cup if you added it all up all the days once, (laughs) Um, or go through like, let's say four to five regular 
pads or tampons. So you would expect to actually have some degree of bleeding. And then on the heavier end, 80 milliliters is generally the cutoff. So there is a such thing as too heavy. And it's interesting because a lot of women have never really heard that. So if the bleeding is really, really heavy, so 80 milliliters is like if you fill like five or six or seven menstrual cups over the course, like more than five, or if you're bleeding through like five, six, seven, you know, uh, tampons or pads like for days type of thing um, then that's heavy so when you have a heavy period it's good to get your iron levels checked because it can be associated with iron deficiency anemia it can be associated with uterine fibroids or endometriosis or estrogen dominance and so it should warrant as if we're thinking about like a vital sign it should warrant for you to get yourself tested you know have an ultrasound have a workup done just make sure everything's okay so if there are women listening right now that are like wow you know I just thought everyone bled as much as this I never knew that there was a range there is and often the response from the medical professionals is we'll just go on the pill but you know we, we might get to that later about why that may or may not be an actual treatment but it, it can reduce the symptoms so um, so that's a period and the other thing I'll say about the period is that although it's very very common for women to experience a lot of pain so a lot of women experience varying levels of pain. Um, in a normal healthy period, we would actually expect there to be little or no pain. So if you regularly experience moderate to severe pain that requires you to take medication for several days, yes, it's really common, but I just want you to think for one minute, are there any other situations in life where moderate to severe pain are considered to be okay? <laughs> Like any, like imagine if there was a man that experienced moderate to severe pain in your pe in his penis. So, I've had women describe to me like the pain, like feeling like people are stabbing them, or like someone's grabbing their uterus from the inside and you know um, kneading it like bread or something like. So I'll just let you you know sit with that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so no, there is not. I've I've really been contemplating this for a long time, and I can't think of one example of moderate to severe pain that is considered normal. So uh, pain is associated with inflammation and tissue damage. Women who experience moderate to severe pain have been shown to have higher markers of uh, inflammatory markers in their bloodstream. So prostaglandins, women with moderate to severe pain have upwards of four times level. It's a sign of inflammation. It's a sign of tissue damage. And it means that outside of what's normal for periods, there's something that we should be looking at, right? So just someone needs to say it out loud, you know, common, but not normal. And it can be improved significantly. So that's the period. And then in a normal healthy cycle, you would expect to, you know, have your period and then you would start to approach ovulation, you would see cervical fluid, so clear, stretchy, like raw egg whites, or um, like creamy white hand lotion, you might see that on your underwear, or if you go to the bathroom and you're wiping yourself, you might notice that it feels really slippery. That's normal, healthy um, fluid that is a, a result of your rising estrogen levels, and you would expect to see that anywhere from about two to seven days as you approach ovulation, and then you would ovulate. So um, when you your, uh, when you ovulate, you start producing progesterone, and after ovulation, you would expect your cervical fluid to go away, and you would expect to get your period about 12 to 14 days later. So taking you through the whole cycle so you have a, a sense of that.
Yes. So I know there's so many ladies that didn't even know that. I know like a few years ago, even with nursing school, we don't really get into too much that I was like, what do you mean a 28 cycle? Like I was like, I got, oh, I have to count all the days. Like it's, and, I, and if I didn't know that, I know there's a whole bunch of women that don't know that. Um, so that's why it's important to educate yourself and also um, just really track your cycle and really understand it. So I know personally, I purchased Daisy, um, like a Daisy app, but do you have any other options of how they can really take control and, you know, track what's going on in their body? Well, I mean, these days, there's so many different options. When I started tracking, it was like circa the year 2000, and there were no apps. There weren't even any cell phones. Like, <laughs> my cell phone had a green screen. It was a different situation altogether. So when I started tracking, I did it on paper. And, you know, surprising to me, a lot of women still like that paper aspect. So obviously not all, but it's helpful to know that you can chart even just with a, like a, you can make an Excel spreadsheet. I've got a charting book, but there's lots of different apps. So when it comes to uh, choosing apps and selecting them, I'm, of course I have some opinions about that. For women who are wanting to understand their cycles and actually consider, you know, jumping into the fertility awareness method. So if you're wanting to start to track and potentially use it for birth control or use it when you're trying to get pregnant, then it's, in my opinion and experience, it's helpful to consider getting an app that doesn't have predictive settings. So there are a lot of apps out there that are programmed with algorithms. And at the end of the day, like I didn't program the algorithm, so I don't know how it's making its call. And what they do is they tell you when it, if they think you're going to ovulate and they tell you when you, they think you're getting a period. And the only challenge is that we're not robots. So our cycles are not always the same. And even if you're fairly consistent, it doesn't mean that you, you couldn't have an earlier or later ovulation in the cycle. And so what can happen is that it can confuse you. Like if the app is telling you you're supposed to be fertile, but you're not seeing any mucus or, um, or you're seeing mucus like several days before the app is telling you you're supposed to, then I, all I've seen is that it can cause a lot of confusion. So uh, there are apps that allow you to take off the prediction setting. And so look for those ones. And then I would encourage you to just actually chart what you see. Just, you know, if you see something, just write it down and do that for a couple of cycles and just start to play with this idea. Start to learn what your cycles are like and, and certainly educate yourself, as you said, grabbing books like my book, like Tony Weschler's Taking Charge of Your Fertility. Like, it's a really good opportunity to start to see. It's, especially for women for whom this is like a really new idea, it can be so just incredible to see the fact that your cycle, it's not always exactly the same, but it's, it's a cycle. So, you know, you have a new one, you know, every however many days your cycle is and, and you get to reinforce those patterns. At first it seems really odd, but like 10 cycles in, it's like, well, I have my period and then I have mucus and then I ovulate and then I, you know, and then my period, like it's very reinforcing and very empowering to see that. Yeah, I would have to agree. Very empowering because finally now I'm like, oh, okay, I know what this discharge is. Like before it was like, I don't know, like, okay, I have discharge. <laughs> like what's going on here? Uh, so yeah, you have the sense of power, man, and you know what's going on in your body. And you also can know like when something's wrong because if it's, if it's not normal, if it's not your normal. And of course it can change with stress levels and stuff like that. Um, but it, it just puts you in the, in the power of owning you know, your life and owning your body instead of just really thinking like doctors are always right. You know your body, so you need to advocate that. Um, so my next question is, because I know there's uh, many women that probably don't get their period right now and they're trying to like figure out what's going on. Um, can you tell us uh, what are the most common health conditions that disrupt the menstrual cycle and how can they improve menstrual health? Yeah, I mean, what I think is interesting as well is that 
you know, any health condition that's having a significant impact on your health can affect your cycle in some way. So obviously some are going to affect it more than others. But I would say that um, one of the most common reasons that the menstrual cycle can be disrupted are thyroid issues. So thyroid disorders. So if you have under a low thyroid function or something like that, which is more common than having an overactive thyroid, uh, that can affect the cycle in a number of different ways. It can delay ovulation. It can um, change the length of your cycle. It can change the length of your period. Uh, if you're taking your temperature and you have a low thyroid function, it can show as low temperatures. Um, and so that's one of a, a very common reason for menstrual cycle disruptions. In addition to that, polycystic ovarian syndrome uh, is, is also a, a really common reason why the cycle may be disrupted. So that's characterized by um, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance. So basically having a, a really a real sensitivity to sugars, for lack of a better word. And what's interesting about that condition is, although it's characterized, like the word is polycystic ovary syndrome, so it makes it seem like it's related to the ovaries or ovarian dysfunction. But what's really interesting is that women who have this condition are at a greater lifetime risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So maybe we've named, like, we don't need to, you know, talk about the name, but there are clinicians that have suggested that maybe we should look at this as a metabolic disorder. So on the chart or in the menstrual cycle, one of the most common ways that this shows up is delayed ovulation or irregular cycles. So you're still ovulating, but often you're going months between periods. So it's really common to have cycles that are, you know, more than 36 days long or having, you know, fewer than nine cycles in a year. And what you're seeing is this just delay in ovulation. So this issue with uh, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance, inflammation, the different you know, things that are happening at play under the surface are then delaying ovulation and causing essentially the situation where your ovaries aren't responding. Like your brain is like, okay, it's time. And you're you know, your, your, your body's kind of like, no, 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 there's something stressful going on here. So we're not going to ovulate right now. Um, and so another disorder that I'll mention too, I mean, if you have gut problems, if you have food sensitivities, um, I've seen that affect the cycle in different ways. So if it's a more severe case of a gut issue, like Crohn's or something that is associated with severe inflammation, that can also delay ovulation. If you have an autoimmune condition, um, if you have food sensitivities, it can disrupt your mucus patterns and your temperature patterns and things like that. And um, so it's really, and another example that I'll share as well is uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea, like when a woman stops getting her period. So she stops ovulating and stops getting her period. Just, it's not irregular, it just goes away entirely. And so that uh, is typically characterized by a combination of over-exercise, under-nutrition, and or stress. And so common among athletes i think a lot of us have heard that idea but it's almost like we think that it's normal like oh athletes lose their periods it's totally fine and uh you know often medical professionals are just putting them on the pill the scary thing about that is that if you have ha and it's characterized by the like you're exercising too much with or or not necessarily too much but you're not um offsetting the your your caloric intake with the um, energetic requirements from your activity and then you're adding stress to the mix, then your body is actually starving. 
And what happens when your body is starving, what the research tells us as well, is that um, your bone mass rapidly starts dropping. So women who have this condition are at a greater lifetime risk of developing osteoporosis. So I understand that, you know, we think that menstrual cycles are only important when we want to have babies, but I'm pretty sure that we want to have healthy bones and not have osteoporosis by the time we turn 30. So someone should really be uh, making this connection between the cycle and overall health so we can be looking at it as a marker. Even the researchers suggest that we shouldn't just jump to putting these women on the pill because it doesn't address the underlying issue. We should really try to, I don't know, get them to eat more and work out less so that they, their periods come back. Yes, exactly. You see, ladies, I know that your period might be annoying sometimes. I, I know, I know. And the pain could be annoying too. But you see how Lisa just told you all the things that can be wrong if you're not getting your period? Not, not even all, many. Yeah, and I was like, that was just like a very small few. So yeah, you need your, your, you know, you need your cycle in order to know like what's going on with your body. And so my next question is, we talked about the pain a little bit and you already said like moderate to severe, that is not normal, but you know, it's, it's something that's very common for those who do experience uh, cramping. I've learned that we should stay away from the NSAIDs and any painkillers. Can you tell us some natural methods for managing period pain or PMS? Well, yeah. And I mean, I would just, I would just kind of share my perspective on the NSAIDs and the painkillers because I suffered from really severe pain for a lot of my, like since I, I had primary dysmenorrhea, that's the word they use when it's like from the first period, it's just always painful. Um, and uh, so I don't, I'm anti-pain, you know? So we all have to do what we, the best we can with what we know. And so if you're at the stage where your periods are still really horrifically painful, I, I never tell my clients not to take medication. I mean, until it's not like it's not ideal. So it's kind of like better best, you know, that whole thing. So but I just want to say like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything negative about anyone using painkillers, because I don't want people to be in pain. And I just know how bad it can be. And when I before I had kids, I thought I would be like on the floor, like rolling around. It was really bad. And I would think to myself, like, this is like labor, but I didn't get a baby out of it. Like, what's the point, right? And then I had two kids and I could tell you that those, that pain that I experienced was worse than the early stages of labor. So we're talking about serious pain here. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, you know, when I was talking about the infl inflammatory markers, I think it's really important to say that out loud because for women, there are women who have had the severe pain and been dismissed by healthcare practitioners, telling them that it's either in their head or, you know, it couldn't be that bad or whatever kind of gaslighting situation. So a lot of women are made to think that it's normal or made to think that they're overreacting. So I want to A, just, you know, acknowledge how horrible it can be. Um, B, tell you that, you know, it's, it's, uh, doesn't have to be that way and that's not actually normal but C tell you that there are scientific <laughs> pieces of evidence that show that women who experience that pain are actually having this higher level of inflammation um, and it can also be linked with endometriosis and so we have to take this pain seriously so if it's linked to inflammation then one of the first things we can do is really try to reduce our exposure to sources of this inflammation and so for many women one of the main sources of inflammation can come from conventionally processed dairy products um, now i'm not anti-dairy i have a whole se section in the book where i go on about dairy and i 
break down the different reasons why dairy can be causing us pain. It's not milk inherently as a concept, but it's how, you know, if, if the cows are eating genetically modified corn and cows are supposed to eat grass, the milk it's producing is necessarily more inflammatory. If, you know, and, and then it just kind of goes on and on, right? Like from there. Um, and then the processing and all that. So there are women who eliminate or reduce their uh, conventionally processed dairy. So whether they eliminate dairy or even if they opt for say goat's dairy or sheep's dairy. So conventional dairy comes from Holstein cows that have a protein called A1 beta casein. Like I won't go on about it, but let's just say the protein in the conventional milk is linked to inflammatory conditions from the period pain issue to autism to you know, there's all kinds, of, it's, it's, the research is bizarre. Let's just put it that way. But there, if you think about those kids that can't have regular cow's milk, but then they go and drink goat's milk and they're fine, it's the same kind of idea there. So some women find some relief by eliminating the regular dairy products, either going organic, looking for A2 milk from local farmers, or going to cow or goats and sheep's dairy. But if you experience severe pain and you regularly drink milk, cheese, regular from the store, um, you want to consider that. Also, um, it's not, again, a lot of people say no red meat. I'm, I'm not anti-meat. I'm looking at how the meat is processed. So again, if you're, if you're getting your meat from cows that are eating, you know, like the regular conventional, you want to look at, okay, so I would say those are two of the kind of the bigger things to look at in your diet. How can you minimize the exposure to these hormone-laden, chemical, full, just all that kind of stuff. Um, in addition to that, how are you cooking your food? So canola oil, corn, like all the, all the different, they're called vegetable oils, but industrial seed oils is the word <laughs> I use in the book. So all of those oils are inflammatory. Um, they have to go through an incredible effort to be produced. And when, they, when you consume them, your cells use those to form. And so your cells are then just... It, these factors contribute to a high degree of inflammation in our body. So switching from those types of vegetable oils to stable saturated fats for cooking, looking to coconut oil or ghee or lard or, you know, duck fat or something that is not, um, something that's able to withstand the heat. So, you know, and the list goes on, you know, sugar, products that are really high in sugar processed foods. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't eat anything, but it just means that we want to actually be aware of some of the factors that are contributing to the inflama uh, inflammatory process. So then what can we do instead? Well, lots of vegetables, lots of greens, lots of foods that are actually going to help our body to detoxify and to help also just um, to lower that general degree of inflammation. So thinking about that as well. Um, in the book, I talk about this and go through like a ton more information. But the other thing I'll say is that there are also particular um, nutrients and supplements that have been studied and shown to reduce inflammation in the body that actually can have an incredible impact on the cycle. Now, for anyone who's listening who has experienced period pain, and you know, I've 
I mean, I remember when I was younger and I was reading books and some of the books would just say stuff I used to get so mad. Like a, a woman would tell a story about how she had all this pain and then she like journaled and had a good cry and then she never had a painful period again. And it just seems so airy fairy. Like a lot of the women who are listening who've had pain have tried so many different things. And so it can be really easy to think just like, oh, I've tried everything and nothing works. But I just want you to know like there is, so um, for example, magnesium has been well studied and it has been shown to reduce the level of prostaglandin, so those inflammatory markers specifically. Most of us are deficient in magnesium, so you know, think about how you can incorporate that, even doing you know, Epsom salt baths or however it is, or you know, looking into supplementation. Um, zinc has been studied really, it's really interesting again, again, it has been shown to reduce those inflammatory markers. And it's interesting, I found a study and it was like, they were looking to add it to the, the NSAIDs, because the one thing about the, the so the NSAIDs, like the ibuprofens and, and those types of things. So the ibuprofen, they the reason that many women find it to like work is because it actually reduces the prostaglandins as well. But the, everyone who's taken it for this period pain knows that there's like a window and you have to take it before the window. And if you don't, it doesn't work. And then whatever the time is on the bottle, if it says four hours, like at the four hour mark, the pain comes back. So it's like a not, it's a different experience when you're taking those. And for about 25% of women, it doesn't work at all. So this is the challenge with the regular medications. If you're doing these, um, these nutrients that support reducing inflammation in the body combined with the dietary practices, what happens is you're reducing the overall level of in inflammation. So it's like it takes the whole pain experience down a notch and I haven't met a woman in my life who had pain that she would characterize like if I were to give her pain scale like zero to ten ten being horrifying if I were to give if she was like an eight or a nine on the scale I haven't met a woman who wouldn't love to have that reduced to a five or a four right like so and for you know so just to put that concept out there um, and the other thing that I'll say just a few more for women who are listening, um, fish oil, so say like cod liver oil or fish oil, has been shown to reduce the inflammatory markers as well. And also um, balancing that omega-3 to omega-6 ratio and turmeric. And, you know, these are not the only things. I know a lot of women are starting to talk about CBD oil. So that's not something I've studied and researched a lot myself. But the reason that I'm going through this list and like going on and on about it is again because I have experienced the pain and my my heart just I just hate the thought of women experiencing pain and really feeling like their only option is either drugs or the pill. The drugs are always there, so you can try these. Um, you know, learn about different alternatives. Learn about the source of it. If you learn about the source being related to inflammation, inflammatory factors, that's more information than most women have received from their traditional health professionals. So just knowing that it's real and that it's there's scientific information around the inflammatory uh, contributing factor cause um, can give you so much more empowerment because then you can actually be like, oh, okay, so then what can I do to reduce that? What can I do to address that, you know? And I've, all I can say is that over the years, I've worked with so many clients who, they're not even coming to me for period pain. They've already accepted that this is like, the, you know what I mean? Like, they don't even tell me. I have to ask. I have to make sure I put in the intake form or they wouldn't even tell me that their pain is so high because they've already accepted it. They've got their own way of dealing with it. Um, but when I get it out of them and, you know, offer them a strategy to start reducing it, so many of my clients are just amazed. Like I had the first period 
where I didn't have to take Advil the first day or I only had to take it the one day or I didn't have to take it at all. I just want women to know that it's possible. That's all. Yes, yes. Oh my God. So you see, ladies, like there's so many ways that you can try and, and check to see like, you know, your, your foods. And I noticed for me too, dairy, I, I have to stay away from dairy. It causes me a lot of pain. Um, and I naturally, like, I like to use the magnesium. Like you said, I actually bought this magnesium spray. So anytime I have like cramping, I just spray on my, um, on my stomach. Um, and I, I do love CBD. CBD is something that really does truly help with cramping. So you have so many options, ladies. So our next question goes into, you talked a little bit about in the very beginning, we're going to go into it a little bit deeper. Um, so there are doctors out here that do prescribe birth control for literally anything that has to do with women problems. Um, um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you feel about being prescribed a birth control for heavy periods or painful periods or even, you know, all the other school of things of why doctors um, prescribe you the birth control pill? Um, well, I mean, in terms of why that's the standard of care is because that's how doctors are taught in medical school. And the reason I feel confident saying that is because I've interviewed a number of doctors and <laughs> a number um, of health professionals that I've specifically asked these questions and interviewed and like, what was medical school like? What did you learn? What did they teach you about the pill? And the consistent answer that I've received from the medical doctors and residents and um, healthcare professionals that I've spoken to is that in medical school, they're presented with obviously, you know, a ton of information about the body in the menstrual cycle, not in the way that we've talked about, um, more from that kind of standard medical view that it's always 28 days. And if it's anything but 28 days, and if there's anything other than this textbook version of it, then the pill is the answer for all of it. So then that obviously is, is how it's, it's treated. So the, the comment that I have about it is similar to the comment that I made about, uh, you know, be using drugs when you have pain. Like, again, we all have to do the best that we can with the information that we have. There are women who have such extreme pain and symptoms that in their experience, in their lived experience, the only thing that has ever helped them to manage those symptoms is the pill, right? And so we have to kind of honor that because that that's their experience. Like I tried a lot of stuff and this was the only thing that, that, that um, took care of it. Um, so, of course, I'm going to throw in the question of, like, we as women deserve better. So why would we think that it's like these these are our two options? We um, should be supported in a much deeper way. But the most important thing, I think, regarding the conversation with the pill is that the pill doesn't actually cure or fix anything. Um, that's a really controversial statement because <laughs> I made it <laughs> before many times and people jump all over me you know I, I had all these problems and that's the only thing that ever helped it and I just want to point out that you know from the allopathic medicine perspective I mean a lot of the medicines do that the the Advil gets rid of the you know the pain but it didn't get rid of the reason that you have the pain it just got rid of the pain um it shouldn't be a controversial statement to say it doesn't fix or cure because it doesn't it, it it gets rid of the symptoms very well though um for for some women right and so we have to first make that distinction so in in that sense a cure would be identifying why <laughs> you're having the problem assuming it's not normal and then addressing that. So the challenge then with prescribing birth control for everything under the sun is that you're not addressing the underlying problem. And I believe that as women, you know, and men and everybody, we deserve to be healthy. 
we deserve to um, and to live our lives without necessarily having to be on medication every single day. You know, uh, the pill was the first drug that was ever developed for healthy women or healthy humans, actually. So just in case no, everybody didn't know that, it was the first drug that was ever developed to give to healthy individuals, people who had no health issue, to basically disrupt a natural process. So think about that for a minute, because it, it was groundbreaking medication, right? <laughs> and it quickly became prescribed for everything menstrual, but literally it's a drug for healthy people uh, to disrupt a natural process. Yeah, like that's like a smack in your face, I, like when you just even think about it, because now I'm like, I was prescribed, I wanted to get on the birth control, right? Because I, I'm Puerto Rican and a lot of my family literally had babies when they were 12, 14. And I was like, that's not going to be me. I need to be on birth control. Um, and I had big goals. So I was like, got to get on it. And I didn't know anything like side effects or anything. And even being prescribed it, I wasn't even educated about the side effects. And I'm 18 years old. So I'm like, I'm just thinking, okay, this is going to prevent pregnancy. Um, but through the years, I've adopted a lot of side effects. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm a healthy person. I work out, I eat right. And like every couple of years, I started to get something like, um, I started to have uh, sensitivities with foods that I used to eat with no problem. Um, and then I started to have a uh, like leaky gut. And I went to the doctor trying to say, Hey, what's going on? Like I work out and I eat right. And I do this. And they're like, we don't know what's going on. And nor did they really try to even figure it out. They're like, you're healthy. You're good. Until I cracked open beyond the pill. And I was like, Oh my God, I have all these symptoms because of this. And the fact that you had said, you know, doctors and I've, you know, I'm an ICU nurse. I don't, I don't work bedside anymore, but um, I've dealt with doctors and I, I know that they, they only learn like the severe, like what's like, especially in the hospital working in the ICU, they're just trying to help you survive at this point. Um, so they really only know about, okay, you're having this symptom. This is the medicine that we're going to give you. And that's basically, you know, kind of what they, what they learn in medical school. So we can't really blame them in, in all, in all ways, but we kind of like very, little I do blame a little bit because I'm like if you want to help people and you want to like really uh really like manage stuff you want to like figure it out why versus hey here's a pill to fix your sleep and fix your anxiety and like and then all of a sudden you're on like 20 different pills and you only had one problem right so yeah. it's it's insane so me personally I, I've been dealing with it and I'm now having thyroid issues because I got off the pill and now my body's like what is going on <laughs> Like, it's like, and I've been sharing my story and, you know, encouraging women to really take power of like what's going on and really be an advocate for yourself because um, I'm like, you know, the one unfortunate people that are having a really bad time. But I know there's a lot of people who have had bad times being on the, on the birth control and not, but also there are other people who have pleasant experiences on the pill. So when we go into my next question is that there are women out here that are either on their pill, but because they're, they're hearing all this stuff or maybe they're getting the side effects, how can they prevent pregnancy um, you know, without being on a hormonal pill? Mm -hmm. Could I jump back to just make another comment about the pill for being on, like if, you ha if you're put on it for yes, definitely. issues? So I just wanted to kind of to say, because in your case, you went on the pill because you didn't want to get pregnant. Um, and then you had negative side effects. And for a lot of women, if, if you have period problems and you're put on the pill, so a medication that wasn't designed to, to solve the problem, one of the challenges is that um, 
what the pill does to the body is that it suppresses normal ovulatory function. So it basically prevents you from having a cycle. And the myth is that you are on the pill and it regulates your cycles and you keep getting your period, but that's not your period. When you're on the pill, it suppresses ovulation. So you're not getting a, a true period. You're bleeding and it's called a withdrawal bleed. But unless you ovulate, unless your ovaries release a, an egg and you know you produce your natural estrogen and progesterone, you don't get a true period. So then essentially what you're doing, and you could look at it a couple ways, like you're putting your fertility on the shelf or you're putting your ovaries to sleep. And so then when you get off the pill, if you went on for period pain or whatever, like that issue is still there. Like it, you never address if the issue is related to inflammation or potentially endometriosis, like the pill doesn't cure endometriosis. It helps you to manage those symptoms. If you had an irregular cycle, as I mentioned, you know, related to that insulin resistance issue, for example, <laughs> then what you did was shut off the inner alarm system that was telling you like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. You just shut off the alarm system. And then the, the, the hardest part for me to get my head around is that if you say get your period every like 80 days or 60 days or whatever, and you go on the pill and the doctor's like, yeah, whatever, you'll get your period every 28 days. That woman thinks that she's getting her period every 28 days. When she goes off the pill because she wants to have a baby, she's, if you have period issues, when you get off the pill, you're more likely to experience a delay in the return of your fertility. Not because the pill is causing you to have problems, but because you had problems before and the pill was masking it. Or you div there are women who had pretty normal periods when they went on the pill. Maybe they got into like a Olympic team <laughs> and all of a sudden they actually had to develop problems in the middle, but because they're on the pill, they just keep getting their regular. So the pill masks the... Um, true what's truly happening with your cycle and so it doesn't give you the opportunity to really know so then when you come off of it you would still have to address the same issue that's that's basically that would you repeat the question that you asked because I don't remember now um, it is for those women who want to get off the pill um, just because maybe they're having side effects or um, you know they just they just kind of like don't want to be dependent on a medicine um, how can they prevent pregnancy yeah, I mean, so I teach fertility awareness for birth control to my clients, and I think one of the biggest challenges, obstacles for women who are considering coming off birth control is just that fear. Really, it's the fear. The biggest ob obstacle is the actual fear that has been instilled in us since we were little girls, essentially. So most of the women that I know were taught that you could get pregnant on any day of the cycle, which is not true. And now it seems like we have a culture that, um, of medical professionals that convey the idea that being off the pill is the same thing as being pregnant. <laughs> uh, it's not. I mean, I even see this in research papers. When they're trying to justify the, because there are serious side effects with the pill that are life-threatening. When they're trying to uh, discuss the life-threatening, like the fact that it increases your risk of st stroke and deep vein thrombosis, they actually compare uh, women on the pill to women as if we just live in a constant state of pregnancy. It's the weirdest thing ever. So <laughs> the and first I, I've personally seen that because I just got off my pill in December and was trying to get in, you know, an appointment with my GYN. And finally I had an appointment last month and I told her, I'm like, yeah, I got off my pill. And she's like, what? Like you look like the worst thing in the world. I'm like, uh, yeah, I wanted to do this for myself. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I experienced the whole like, you know, it, oh my God, it's a problem. Why you're not on it. Do you want to get on something else? I'm like, no. 
(laughs) It's like a ticking time bomb kind of like, it's just, so I think that, and because that is the message, the very clear message that we're getting, it's even worse than when I, because when I was growing up, um, because I guess I'm older, like, um, I started using fertility awareness around the year 2000-ish, and so um, back then, the sex education wasn't great, but they did talk about condoms as being an effective method of birth control, and so I didn't, as, like, the message of being off the pill is the same as being pregnant wasn't as prevalent when I was growing up, so I'm finding this to be a very strange shift, and uh, so just so that's a very real barrier for women because now we're at the point that it's like if you're not on the pill, the doctors are harassing you because it's like it's just a matter of time before. Um, <laughs> but what I can say is that it's possible to prevent pregnancy without hormonal birth control. I mean, I find it to be fascinating that women doubt their ability to sort this out because I'm, you know, I've worked with women who are, you know, doctors, lawyers, naturopaths, like I'm pretty sure that's some complicated work you're doing there, right? (laughs) So we could figure this out. So I think the first of all, women need to hear experiences and of other women to know that it's possible. Uh, There are women who prevent pregnancy with withdrawal, with condoms, with um, cervical cap, diaphragm, um, fertility awareness, a combination of those things. And it is possible, you know, so we can talk about like what this looks like. So I think that's really helpful. So fertility awareness uh, gives you a really helpful window into the cycle because it takes you from, from this place of fear where you've been told that you could get pregnant any day of the cycle and you have no idea why or how it works. It's just be in constant terror all the time. Like who wants that message? It's completely silly. So with fertility awareness, you learn that from a scientific perspective, there's a small window of fertility each cycle. There's actually six days of the cycle where pregnancy is possible, and that is the five days before ovulation plus ovulation day. The reason why is because sperm can survive in your cervical fluid for up to five days. So our cervical fluid is what extends the window of fertility for, you know, this additional period of time. And, um, when you are not producing cervical fluid, your vagina is acidic, your cervix is closed, the sperm physically can't get in. So when I was first learning this method, I mean, my mind was blown. I was 18 or 19 years old. And the interesting thing is like, first I learned it in the book. I was like, okay, wow, you know, this mucus thing and wow, the cervix thing and this temperature thing. And then I started charting and I could see it for myself. I was checking my cervix and I could feel when it was open. I could feel when it was closed and it matched up with the mucus signs and it matched up with the temperature. So before I started actively using the method, I actually could, you can see it. It's biology. It's science. So if you're science minded, this is a very good exercise for your brain, right? It's like, it's, it's science. Um, so for women who are wanting to do this, it's very empowering to add fertility awareness, especially if you were thinking about avoiding pregnancy with a barrier. It's very empowering to be able to add fertility awareness knowledge to whatever method that you were planning to use a barrier, because then you're able to be very intentional with how you manage your fertile window. And you're also able to Um, I feel like you're just able to make more um, intentional choices. 
So with fertility awareness, one of the ways that I've started describing it is when you're on hormonal birth control or any of the methods like the IUDs or the implants or the shots or whatever, you're physically changing your body. You're making your body resistant to sperm. This is what I've, this is how I've started to say. So when you're on the pill, for example, you don't ovulate, your cervix is always blocked with the mucus plug, your uter uterine lining is too thin to allow the implantation so your body is physically resistant to sperm and you don't have to think about anything and you don't have to interact with anything um, when you're off of hormonal birth control your body is not resistant to sperm all the time it's actually resistant to sperm the majority of your cycle and you're just trying to figure out when that window is and um, that allows you to and forces you to have these conversations with your partner it forces your partner to have to play an active role in the situation it forces you to modify your behavior and when you're looking at how to manage that period of time when you could get pregnant, you now have all of these options. I think because the, the conversation around birth control is so focused on hormones, we forget that there are actually options here. So to manage the fertile window, um, you know, my clients, I, I basically present it like a menu and then my clients figure out what they're most comfortable with. So some women abstain from sex entirely, no sex, no nothing during their fertile window. So those are the days when you could actually get pregnant. Some women will not have penis and vagina intercourse, but they'll have alternative sex. So anything but penis and the vagina and be really enjoyable, obviously. Um, some women will use condoms during the fertile window. Some women will use withdrawal during the fertile window. And I talk about withdrawal and I mention it because a lot of people use it, not because I'm promoting it, but because a lot of people use it, actually use it in their relationships. <laughs> it is the dirty little secret that no one wants to talk about, but this is my line of work. And, um, and also like diaphragms are making a comeback in cervical caps. So when you are charting your cycle and you know the specific window of time when you could conceive, a lot of my clients will then, if they're, if they choose to have sex, so some of my clients, some of the women in general who use fertility awareness may have had, you know, a condom break or something, and they're just done with, you know, for them, it's just not comfortable. So there are women who just say no, no sex. But many women who choose to have protected sex during the fertile window will double up. So maybe they'll use a condom. So their partner uses a condom, and then he actually will withdraw with the condom on before he ejaculates so it's like two methods some of my clients will for instance use like a diaphragm or a cervical cap and a condom as well or have their partner withdraw as well as that um, so as you can tell it's just it opens up this conversation and you can handle this for so so I'm going on but I'll just make one more point um, women who choose fertility awareness this method. No one is forcing anybody to do this. The women who choose this method are called to it. They resonate with it. They want to understand their bodies and they feel really empowered with the ability to not have to rely on medication to preserve their fertility. And so the women who choose to do this are more than capable of sorting this out. Yes, certainly. Yes, I have to agree because at first, you know, um, getting off my pill, that was the first thing was like, I was afraid. I was like, how can I, you know, how am I going to prevent pregnancy? I'm not ready. Um, but, you know, reading your book and learning all the different ways that I could control it, 
it gives you that power, like you said, and you finally know what's going on with your body. And, and also my husband loves to learn too. He's like, Oh, do you have mucus today? Like it's, you know, it's, it's very like, it's, it's interesting that he's so into it, but I think it's more is that he's like, can we have sex today? Like, I think that's, I think that's the reason why he's so into it. But ladies, there are, you know, so many options um, for you to, you know, to learn about. And I highly recommend to uh, grab Lisa's book because you're going to learn so many different ways. So now we're going to go into the opposite thing. There are probably women out here that actually want to prep and have a baby when they get off their pill. Are there any like small little steps or, you know, tips that you can give them to increase their fertility? Um, yes, I would say first and foremost, um, whether it's controversial or not to say, I'm just going to say it. Hey, I think that as we get... <laughs> I think that as we get older, as women, we really have to start being more intentional about our choice of contraceptive. So what I mean by that is often we go on birth control at a young age because, again, we do the best we can with what we know. So we go on birth control at a young age. We make a decision at age 16, age 18, age 21, and then we are now 28, 29, 30, and we haven't intent like we haven't thought about that decision that decision was made a long time ago but we haven't necessarily reflected on that decision to see if I would still make that decision and if it's still the best decision for me so the reason that I say that is because in addition to not learning about our menstrual cycles in the general sense we're also not really taught about our fertility so I've spoken to a number of women in their mid to late 30s who are still just as terrified of getting pregnant if they come off the pill as a 20 year old woman is and in that conversation it doesn't mean that any woman can come off the pill and get pregnant right away so I'm not saying like that you know I'm not trying to dismiss the reality of the situation but with that said a woman who is 37 does not have the same fertility as a woman who's 21 and we have to be able to have that conversation so one of the things that I encourage all women to think about as we start to get older is that if you are planning to have a baby in the next few years like even if you haven't you're not ready today but you know you want to have a baby within the next let's say you know, two, three years, something like that, it's time to really start thinking about your birth control. Because one of the things that, um, so experience as well as the scientific research show is that although the pill is not associated with causing fertility problems, there is um, a temporary period of subfertility that follows coming off the pill that is especially exacerbated by long-term use. And in the literature, long-term use is defined as two years or more most of the time. <laughs> so most women, I mean, yeah, some women are using the pill for two years, but a lot of women are using the pill for like 20 years or 15 years or 10 years. And so that qualifies as long-term. And so um, one thing, if you were put on the pill because you had irregular cycles or you didn't know when you were gonna ovulate, you are at a greater risk of having a delay in the return of your fertility. Not because the pill causes that, but because the pill masks it. So if you never knew when your period was coming and that's why you were put on the pill, when you come off of it, your cycle, what like you weren't, you know? So, so that I think is really, really important for women who are on the pill right now. Um, if you, uh, say you got your first period and you know your cycles were pretty normal and you cycled for several years before you went on the pill um, in my experience the women who went on the pill strictly for birth control who had pretty typical cycles and had several years after their first period like their periods their cycles actually matured before they went on it I've seen a lot of women in those situations just come off the pill and go back even after a long time and when I did the snapping thing and said go back what I meant was they ovulated 
and then they continue to ovulate regularly. Every woman who comes off a pill <laughs> um, after you know long or short-term use has um, on average nine to 12 cycles before all of those cycle parameters normalize. So what's really typical for women who've been on the pill for a long time or other hormonal contraceptives that are having the similar effects, suppressing mucus production, suppressing um, ovulation, those types of things, which most are actively doing, is that um, it's really typical for it to take a while before the mucus patterns normalize. It's really typical for the first several cycles to not be 28 days, <laughs> um, for ovulation to be delayed, or for the second phase of the cycle, so the number of days between ovulation and the next period for that to be on the shorter end. So there was a cycle where, or um, there was a study where the researchers specifically looked at the cycle characteristics post-pill, and they had a group of women that had never used contraceptives and then a group of women who had, and they came off the pill and they measured how, they measured their cycles and all these parameters and how long it took before the cycles normalized. And then it was an average of nine to 12 cycles before like the mucus patterns normalized, the overall cycle length, um, ovulation when it was happening in the cycle, the length of the second half of the cycle, nine to 12 cycles. And just to be clear, nine to 12 cycles is not nine to 12 months because some of some women come off the pill and don't ovulate for the first time for several months. So nine to 12 cycles is more like 12 to 18 months. So that's a long way of saying that. Um, if you are planning to get pregnant in the near future and you have the benefit of time, I would recommend at least 18 months or two years. So I would recommend you know, considering coming off birth control when you are still actively avoiding pregnancy. So you're going to have to have a plan, you know, condoms, all the things that we just talked about, figure it out. If you want to chart, you're going to need um, a minimum of three to six cycles on your own of charting before you can rely on fertility awareness as birth control. So I would say, you know, but with that said, this is your insurance policy. It's certainly possible to come off the pill and just get right back into ovulation. And some women get pregnant right away. But on average, women who are on the pill take about twice as long to get pregnant as women who weren't using birth control. So in another study, it was like women off condoms, women who were using IUDs, women who using the pill, the shot, and they compared the time it took them to get pregnant on average you know, all of the different methods and condoms. And so the women using condoms, on average, it took four months. Women who were using the pill, on average, it took eight months. So I, I, I just can't stress it enough that you don't know what's going to happen. And yes, it's certainly possible that it could happen immediately. But for, every, for your own mental health, <laughs> um, it's a really good idea to come off the pill before you need to get pregnant right away so that your cycles can normalize, that you don't have to worry about, oh, why is my cycle, is this coming back, whatever. Like, 18 months to two years gives you a period of time where if it takes four months for your first period to come back and then it takes a couple cycles for things to normalize, you're not stressed. But if, you're, if you come off the, the hormones the month that you want to start trying and it takes four months and then you, know, you don't get pregnant for a year, by the time that year comes, you've probably already done several fertility treatments and really your body hadn't even had a chance to normalize. So that's the most important thing I would think. Yes, that is, wow, like, uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to say, like, 
wow, like no one knows this. And also doctors don't tell you that either because all you care about is like, you know, you're ready. You have, you want to have a baby. And I personally know so many women who have been going through fertility issues and with me sharing my story of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prevent pregnancy, but I was like, I need to get off because I know there's something going on with my body. I need to figure that out first. And then once I feel better, once my cycle gets back, then, okay, I can worry about having a baby. But there are women who, you know, sadly, they're not, you know, super educated about what's going on with their body. And they're like, okay, I'm off my pill. I want to have a baby tomorrow. And that's not always possible for everyone. So the fact that you explain to them why it takes our body so much time to get back to, you know, regular, you know, regular normal state, whatever that normal state was for you. And that is frustrating because I'm currently going through that. I got off my pill December, it was like December 18th. Um, but I finally did get a period in February, but it obviously wasn't a normal period. So now it's like just waiting and waiting. And I, I get it, women, like I know it's frustrating because I'm currently doing with, you know, dealing with it. Um, but like Lisa said, like if, if babies are in your future, you definitely want to advocate for yourself and, you know, get off, get off, you know, much, much earlier than you decide, you know, you want it to because like Lisa said, you're going to get frustrated with yourself if you feel that, you know, you can get pregnant right away. But with your body trying to get back to normal, that's not the case. Um, so my, go ahead. Well, and just imagine, just imagine how stressful it would have been if you came off in December to have a baby and you didn't get your period until February. Yeah. So from my experience, so from where I sit, because I know that there is only a small window you know, I've worked with clients and they'll come to me and they'll say, I've been trying to conceive for two years. We go through the charts together and maybe there's six months that sex has actually happened in the window. So in your mind, it's, I've been trying for two years that, you know, January, December counts as a try, January counts as a try, February counts as a try. But um, really there was only one ovulation in there, right? So uh, this is why this information is so empowering. Uh, and then women can then do whatever they want with it. Exactly. It's just learn what you can and figure out what, you know, get your help too, because there's women like Lisa all around that can help you with understanding your cycle and stuff like that. Um, so I'm very grateful for all the information that you gave us. And I have actually one last question is that if readers could take away one thing from this book, what would you want it to be? I think it would be, I, I feel inclined to say, trust your intuition. And the reason for that is because although we talk about the practical aspects of charting, of using it for birth control, trying to get pregnant, understanding about your health, what happens for my clients and what's happened for myself and over all these years is that you develop, you realize that you're in conversation with your body. And when you have years of charts under your belt and if something does happen and something is off when you go to your healthcare professional if they tell you it's in your head or whatever you know it's not <laughs> because you have this knowledge and there seems to be this kind of war on our intuition women having period pain women having issues going to get some help and being told that it's not important or that it doesn't matter or that whatever and if anything this is a one it's not the only way but it's certainly one way of actually connecting to your intuition trusting your symptoms believing in yourself and 
essentially empowering yourself. Yes. Thank you so much for writing this book because it certainly has empowered me to really get down and deep and know really what's going on with my body. Again, thank you so much for being a part of She Hustles podcast. For those women who want to learn more, where can they find you? Well, thank you so much for that. Um, So the book is The Fifth Vital Sign and it's available in ebook, paperback, audio. You can go to thefifthvitalsignbook.com all spelled out and get the first chapter for free or it's available on Amazon. And uh, you can find me at fertilityfriday.com. If you're into podcasts, I've got over 300 episodes about fertility awareness. We've been talking about it for a while. Uh, and you, ju- you could just type Fertility Friday into your favorite podcast player. Awesome. Thank you so much. And ladies, all her information will be in the show notes. If you love this episode, let me know, girl. Slide into my Instagram DM. Tag me that you're listening to this episode and say, Josira. I love this. This was super helpful. It's literally the way that I know what content to create for you. So show me love and don't forget to tag me. I would love to connect and talk with you. Thank you so much for listening. If there are any special topics you'd like me to go over, please don't hesitate to email me at josirafitness at gmail.com and make sure to drop a review and subscribe. Have a blessed day. Thank you.